Amen. Have you ever wondered what takes place at Trinity when you guys are not here? What do we do when everybody else has gone home? Well, I wanted to give you a small glimpse of that. I think there should be a video that'll show up on the screen. Actually, the other one. Sorry, not that video. Just to let you know, uh, the reason we're doing this on a Wednesday is because Zong is about to be going back to China uh, tomorrow. Is that correct? Yes. And he has surrendered his life to Christ. I'm going to ask you three questions. The first two you have to say yes to. The second one, it's up to you. The first one is, have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Yes. Do you plan to live for him for the rest of your life? Yes. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate today with Zong, the work that you've done in him. Thank you for the salvation that has come to you to him. Thank you for the opportunities that he has seen over this past several weeks. Thank you for the people that you've brought across his path. But I pray now for your anointing to be upon his life. Lord, I pray that as he prepares to go back to China, that you would allow him to be a witness, to be a light to the people there. Allow him to grow, to become the man of God that you created him to be. Help him, Lord, as he is filled with your spirit to experience all that you would have for him. But we know that he is not here by accident. We believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is here by your anointing. Lord, I pray that you would go with him also from this point. Now at this time, Zong, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I wanted to share that with you this morning. It's rare that we have the opportunity to do something like that during the week. Typically, we would do that on a Sunday morning. But this past Sunday, Zong gave his heart to Christ. And because of that, we actually have a candle that's lit down here this morning. And in addition to that, we wanted to be able to baptize him. He wanted to be baptized before he left. And he left this week to go back to China. What a blessing it was to be able to share with him on this occasion. It was also nice. I know it was uh, obviously it happened after Sunday, which limited the number of people who could be here, plus people work. But it was nice. I think we ended up with about 25 or 30 folks that showed up to support and to celebrate uh, this decision that Zong had made. That's what the body of Christ is about. It is about introducing people to Jesus Christ and sharing with them that there is a hope and there is something much greater that awaits every one of us. And Zong is one who can testify to that. Looking through some old funeral sermons this week, I gathered a small collection of items which I have read about those who have died. Now, before I read the list, you should know that uh, it is not an exhaustive list. And as a part of the reason for the diversity of the statements, it is related to the fact that uh, I have done many funerals for people who are not a part of the church. I'll also add that some of these were even from people inside the church. These are the things which these individuals would most be remembered for. He was a good man, a good father, a hard worker, a great friend who could always make me laugh. He loved everyone, 
Loved his gardening, loved fishing, loved the Philadelphia Eagles and Phillies. I was living in the Philadelphia area. Loved his animals, loved his kids. She loved having family over. She loved cooking. She loved her weekly trips to the casino. Unfortunately, we had a casino close by. She would do anything for anybody. She would have given the shirt off her back for other people. In addition to these comments, there were at least two funerals where we skipped that portion of the sermon because the family simply could not identify anything positive to say about the individual who had died. Well, these are all relatively nice things to say about the individual. And they almost all reflect the goodness of the individual with the exception of the two who didn't have anything nice to say. But I wonder, is it enough? In other words, when we die, will all our goodness be enough to get us to heaven? Last week, I began a sermon series on the myths of the church. And one of the myths that is often presented in society today, and yes, even within the church, is this idea that if so-and-so was a good man, then he will go to heaven. Or if she was a good woman, then she will go to heaven. But truly, is our goodness enough? We've all been to that funeral where someone has stood up and said, you know, Uncle Johnny, he was such a wonderful man. And you're thinking, are you sure you're talking about the same guy we're talking about? He's probably looking down from heaven at us right now. And you're sitting in a pew thinking, I think he's looking up. <laughs> say, well, he's probably got a tear falling from his eye. And you say, no, I think that's a drop of sweat coming because he's, he's not in heaven. The reality is, goodness in itself will never be enough to get someone to heaven. But within the church and within the world around us today, there is this idea that good people will end up in heaven one day. The question, don't all good people go to heaven, presupposes a few things. First, there is the assumption that God exists and that he is all loving. We're going to look at that this morning. Second, there is an assumption that although some bad people may deserve God's wrath or his punishment, most people are generally good. And as such, they're entitled to heaven when they die. Third, there's the view that entrance into heaven is based on our works rather than on his grace. And finally, related to the question about heaven is the implicit suggestion that hell, if it even exists, is really only for a very small marginal few who are responsible for particularly evil acts. You might think of someone like Osama bin Laden or someone like Hitler. Those are people who they deserve hell, but they are certainly not the norm. Well, let's look at these. First of all, is God really an all-loving God? I will answer this one ahead of time for you. The answer is an absolute yes. He is an all-loving God. But I want you to listen as I explain that answer. First, the scriptures clearly declare God's goodness. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. I think it'll be on the screen behind me. This is from the New Living Translation. It says this. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? 
Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I love the way that ends. No matter what translation you read from, you get the same message. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. What a wonderful truth. But I'm afraid that even within this statement, there is confusion. And that's what I want us to look at for a few moments this morning. Let's start, first of all, with what everyone can agree on. First, God is merciful. Deuteronomy 4.31 states, For the love your God, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the solemn covenant he made with your ancestors. That means that we don't ever have to worry about God turning his back on us. This is an idea that is repeated many times in the Old Testament. It is the idea that his mercy will endure forever. His mercy endureth forever. And it's true. I've often stated that I am grateful that I will not stand in judgment upon myself when the day of judgment comes. For his grace and mercy are far greater than my own. Things that I would never be able to forgive, God says, but I forgive. It's a great thing to think about when often you maybe struggle with forgiving yourself for your shortcomings and your sin. See, the reality is the moment we confess our sins, Jesus Christ is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And often at times, it's not an issue of whether Jesus has forgiven, but rather have we forgiven. We struggle to forgive ourselves. But what a blessing to know that our God is merciful and graceful. And he offers us the forgiveness that maybe we would not even be willing to give ourselves. I am grateful to be able to tell you today that God's mercy is certainly not in question. But just as we can agree on this issue of mercy, there is another aspect of God's love that sometimes we would rather ignore or simply hope that it doesn't exist. It's that aspect of love being displayed through justice. In the midst of a prophetic message of judgment, Isaiah tells us that the Lord longs to offer compassion to his people. 
But then he adds that aspect of love that makes us all just a little bit uncomfortable. Isaiah 30, verse 18 says, For the Lord is a God of justice. He is just. Maybe you wonder for a moment what justice has to do with love. I'm going to tell you that I hate when I have to discipline my children. I don't enjoy having to fuss at my children. I never enjoy having to raise my voice to them. But you know, sometimes I have to raise my voice. My kids are saying amen. They hear it. They know that there are times that I have to discipline my kids. I'll tell you, sometimes I have to do more than raise my voice. Does that mean that somehow I cease to love them in those moments? Does that somehow suggest that when it reaches that point where they need, I'm going to use a word we don't use in our society very often, when they need a whooping, <laughs> does that somehow mean that I no longer love my children? Or instead, does that mean that perhaps that discipline is simply a part of the love that I offer to them? I think it's pretty safe to say that the only reason I would ever discipline my children is because I really do love them that much. I mean, would, I would rather do just about anything else than to have to discipline my kids. I would much rather hang out with them and eat and play games and do all kinds of fun stuff. The last thing I want to do is to fuss at my kids or to whoop them. But there are times I have to. Hebrews 12, 6 says, The Lord disciplines the one that he loves. And the same would be true for every parent. Just because we discipline doesn't mean we don't love, but rather it emphasizes that love. I used to work with a youth group in North Carolina. One of the young ladies had a beautiful name. Her name was Vanity. She was a beautiful young lady. And one of the things that she stated, we were in the middle of a, an event where there were parents and teens together. And as they were sharing with one another, the teens, many of the teens were explaining how they think their parents are too strict. Their parents discipline them too frequently. Vanity sat there without a parent present. And finally, after a few moments of listening to everybody else, she stood up and she said, you guys don't realize what you're talking about. She said, I wish my mom and dad loved me enough to tell me no. I wish my mom and dad loved me enough to discipline me. The truth is, discipline is an incredible act of love. I know, we would definitely prefer God to show us mercy. That's the part of love we enjoy. We enjoy when God says, oh, everything's going to be okay. It's great. It's okay. I forgive you. But we also need to know that he is a just God. If God truly loves you, he cannot leave out the justice and discipline. Would it truly be love if God simply ignored your sin? Would it truly be love if God saw you heading down a path of destruction and he simply turned the other way? Would it truly be love if God told you that the wages of sin was death and then he didn't keep his word? Nah, I'm just kidding. You're not really going to die. I just wanted to have fun with you. I just wanted to scare you. Can you imagine God doing that? That wouldn't be an act of love. 
There's another aspect of love that goes beyond the mercy, beyond the justice. It is found in his holiness, for he is holy. To be holy is to be without stain or to be without blemish. It is to be like God. Now imagine for a moment that we have a God which is perfect in every way. By the way, it's not that hard to imagine because it's true. With that image in mind, you should know that he will never have to change. He is legitimately the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means that you can count on him never changing in his love toward you, his expectations toward you, and in his laws. Have you ever taken a job where you knew this is what you were called to do? This was the expectation from your boss. Your job description was clearly laid out. And somewhere along the way, the expectations began to change. You still had to do certain things, but some of them weren't clearly defined for you. Do you know how frustrating that is? When you're not really exactly sure what the boss is expecting. Well, the one thing we can always know is that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the expectations that he had yesterday will be the same expectations for tomorrow. They don't change. He will always, always be faithful to who he is. Well, this leads us to the second factor regarding whether our goodness is enough to get us into heaven. It's the question, are most people really good? I would love to tell you that the answer is yes, but I'm not sure that that's a true statement. Are most people really good? According to Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Wow, that's actually a pretty harsh statement. The heart is deceitful above all things, worse than everything else. It is beyond cure. There is no hope there. Who can understand it? That's actually pretty ugly. But you say, well, maybe that's just because of the way people are raised. You know, there are some people that are raised in an ungodly home and they have really bad influences and it doesn't surprise us that they would take the path which they choose. Well, consider Psalm 51.5, which says, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Well, I'll tell you, if I was sinful at birth from the time that I was conceived, that takes completely out the question of how I was raised. The truth is, every one of us is born with a sinful nature. There is something that is naturally within us that drives us to, to sin. Nobody had to teach me as an infant child to think selfishly. It was actually a natural part of me that I am born with. All of us, no matter how good you may think you are today, all of us are born with a sinful nature. It is the humanity which we are a part of. Mark 10, 18, Jesus takes it a step further. And he says, no one is good except God alone. Now, if Jesus' statement is correct, we run into a big problem regarding whether our goodness is enough to get us into heaven. If Jesus is correct and no one is good, then it can be implied, it can be assumed that no one will get into heaven based on your own goodness. You're counting on all the good things that you've done. You're counting on the fact that you're a good person in general. 
But Jesus has already declared, and he is the one who will stand with us at the judgment. He has already declared that no one is good. I want you to think for a minute. How good are you really? You think about all the good things that you've accomplished. You've done some really good things in your life. Some of you have been so good to help other people in need. Man, what a blessing it is when you can actually encourage other people, when you can walk alongside them when they're in the midst of their struggle, and you can be the one to offer them hope. Oh, man, what a blessing it is to see someone who is down in the dumps and and be able to watch them become someone who is filled with joy. What a blessing it is to help other people. I'll tell you, there have been times I've helped neighbors with their gutters. There have been times that I've helped. I know you don't get snow much down here, but we got snow big time up in Pennsylvania. And there were times that I would shovel someone's driveway. There were times, actually, my neighbor had passed away. And I remember nobody, his daughter really wasn't able, and nobody came to cut the grass at all. And I'm telling you, that grass was up probably at least to my knees, maybe a little further. And I thought to myself, you know what? I should go and I should do that. Tried it with the mower and it didn't work. So I had to use a weed eater for the entire yard. That's great that I did those good things, but understand my goodness is absolutely not enough. If in my sin, I caused someone else to suffer, maybe even caused someone else to die, how can all of my goodness make up for what I did. Jesus told us that the wages of sin is death. Actually, God told us all the way back in the book of Genesis that the wages of sin is death. That means the cost of my sin was death. Well, Jesus was the one who took upon my sin. That means that my sin, my evil, not the good, The evil caused not only a good man, but the son of God to die. How much good would I need to do to make up for the evil that I have already done? It cannot be. My goodness will never, ever be enough. This leads to the next point, which is a battle between works and grace. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is only by grace that you can enter into the presence of God. And that grace was freely given to us by way of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I mentioned Jesus addressed this issue of the wages of sin being death all the way back in the book of Genesis. We actually see it in the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had lived in peace in the garden, enjoying all the pleasures that God had created, and they were given one specific instruction, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you will surely die. If you sin, you will die. The wages of sin is death. They, as soon as they ate from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they recognize a problem. They're naked. Never been a problem before because truly their heart was fixed solely on the Lord. Sin had not even entered in. 
And therefore, they didn't even realize there was a problem. So Adam and Eve do what any good person would try to do. They cover up. They use fig leaves, but you know, fig leaves can only last for so long. So God takes the skin of an animal and he makes clothes for them. The funny thing about skin of an animal is a animal, an animal does not give up his skin without also giving up his life. From the very first sin, the cost was something had to die to cover up for sin. In a similar vein, Jesus Christ shed his own blood so that we could have our sins covered through his grace. One more thought regarding Christ's sacrifice, though. If our goodness was really enough to get us into heaven, then Jesus Christ's sacrifice is completely useless. It wasn't necessary. That's dumb. Why would Jesus lay down his life as our sacrifice if it wasn't necessary? If my goodness was enough, then why would it matter if Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected three days later? I'm good, therefore God has to let me in. That makes no sense at all. Remember the night that Jesus was arrested? Do you remember the prayer that he offered to the Lord? Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way. The only way that we could be redeemed, the only way that we could be forgiven was for Jesus Christ to become our sacrifice because our goodness could never, ever be enough. It is only by the grace of Jesus Christ that anyone can be saved. Understand that it doesn't matter how sincere you may be. It doesn't matter. Really, I don't care how good your heart is. Proverbs 16, 25 says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. You may have the best intentions in the world, but if you do anything other than depend on the grace of Jesus Christ, you will not be able to do enough. The year was 2000. I preached a sermon that was entitled, Where the Good People Go. The premise of the sermon was simply that there will be an awful lot of good people who end up in hell one day solely because they are under the mistaken false assumption that their goodness will be enough. Ironically, the opposite of that is true as well. There will be many bad people who sneak into heaven. There will be many individuals who have lived an ungodly life, making decisions that all of us would look at with great hatred and horror. And God, in his mercy and grace, he will forgive them. He will welcome them into his kingdom. I will tell you that that morning, as I gave that sermon, I gave an invitation and one individual gave her heart to Jesus Christ. It was a lady who had been good throughout most of her life. She was in her 60s. She had attended church off and on, but she had never surrendered her life to Jesus Christ before. 
she shared with me that a part of the reason she had not was because she was a good person and she just assumed that she would make it to heaven based on that goodness. Within the next few years, she would battle brain cancer and she would eventually die, but today she is in heaven. It's not because of her goodness. It's not because she had served as a nurse at one point. It's not because of the children or the grandchildren that were raised within her family. It is solely because of the grace that Jesus Christ extended. That one single lady who gave her heart to Christ that morning was my grandmother. And I look forward to the day that we are reunited together in heaven. But I wonder this morning if maybe there aren't others who like my grandmother. You're a good person. Your goodness can be seen in your actions. But your goodness is not enough. Maybe you've been a part of the church for years. Faithful to attend every Sunday. When the offering plate goes by, you know to give a tithe. That's what we're supposed to do. You come to Sunday school. Maybe you sing all the songs. You know all the songs. Maybe you're in the choir normally. Maybe you're on the worship team. Maybe you even teach a Sunday school class. Did you know it's possible for those who participate in the service, who participate in the ministry of the church, to still go to hell? I was speaking with an individual this morning who has a family member going through a horrible tragedy because of sinful choices. And he's right. He stated that, you know, I don't understand because he can quote scripture. He can sing for the Lord. He can honor the Lord and all these things. But here he allows this in and it doesn't make sense. And I'll tell you that just because you do good, it is not enough to get you into the kingdom of heaven. It is only by the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ that anyone can be saved. Your goodness is not enough, but his mercy is. We're going to pray in just a moment. And I'm going to invite you this morning. I'm going to ask uh, Anna and Melody if they would come back and they're going to play. I'm going to invite you this morning to examine your heart. All the goodness that is present, if you're counting on that, you're in big trouble. For Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. If your heart is already right between you and the Lord, and you are depending on his mercy, you should look forward to the day of his return. What a great day it's going to be. We get to celebrate with him. We will rejoice when that eastern sky is open and he will come and he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. What I find so humorous with that is he celebrates well done and he calls us good. Not because of how good we truly are, but because of his mercy that has wiped away all of the evil. What an incredible day that's going to be. But I'll tell you, if you're simply counting on your goodness, you're in trouble. Now is the time to turn toward his mercy. We're going to open up the altar. As they play, I'm just going to ask you to just play for, I don't know, probably 30 seconds. The altar's open this morning. 
If you're depending on your goodness, I'm going to invite you to come. I do ask everyone to stand as we have this time of invitation. Is there anyone else who perhaps today you would like to come and simply respond to God's grace and his mercy to surrender your life to Jesus Christ just as Zong did last week and we were able to baptize him and celebrate. Is there anyone else who would say today, Pastor, maybe I've been depending more on my goodness and it's time for me to depend on his grace and his mercy instead. Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, it is a privilege, a privilege to be able to come into your presence and to worship you. But we recognize today that while we have been good people, it's actually a lie. Lord, there is a sinful nature that exists within every one of us until we are redeemed by you. Father, you have given us the opportunity this morning to release all of the things that have kept us from being what you called us to be. All the things that keep us from truly honoring you. But we have depended on our goodness, but our goodness is incomplete. Oh, we can identify the good things that we've done and how we've brought happiness to other people. But truly, Lord, we know that one day we're going to come before you. And according to your own words, Lord, you've already determined that without your mercy and grace, there's nothing good within us. Lord, I pray today that you, by your mercy and grace, would forgive us of our sins that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And from this moment forward, we would no longer be identified by our goodness or lack thereof. But rather, we would be able to stand before you one day and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, as you have offered this forgiveness to us, well, we believe today that you are faithful to keep your promises. Well, we come before you and we know that you have offered us cleansing. For those two that have come to the altar this morning, Lord, may they know your grace more clearly than ever. Lord, I pray that today would be a day that would mark a new beginning. To no longer live by our own merits or our own strength, but rather from this moment forward, fill them with your spirit that they may truly live as the body of Christ. Oh, we praise you. We celebrate you. Or may you be honored. In all of us, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your grace. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. We're going to sing one last song as we close. And I believe it's, uh, I don't have the song sitting in front of me. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for redeeming us. It is only in you that we have any hope, any promise. But what a great promise we have. Well, we celebrate you today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. By the way, the reason I had Melody and Anna share this morning.